today's programme, we hear from the author of Evolution and Belief. The book makes a compelling case for why understanding evolution is less of a challenge to religious belief and doesn't make people into atheists. We devote much of today's show to the controversy. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. Today's guest is a lecturer and a curator of vertebrates at the Cambridge Museum of Zoology. He is Dr. Rob Asher, and he's also the author of Evolution and Belief, Confessions of a Religious Paleontologist. Oh, uh, this is sounding controversial. A zoologist interviewed by a plant scientist. This will ruffle feathers or shake your pollen. <laughs> well, zoologists and botanists do play nicely. We are two sides of the same coin, after all. Um, we had a very interesting chat, and I have to say, Roger, I was impressed by his thoughtfulness and balanced views. So, what are we going to hear about? Well, Dr. Rob sheds light on misunderstandings about science and religion and shares about evidence for the evolution of animals. Let's have a listen for about 10 minutes, then we'll have a catch-up and listen to the rest of the interview. Good idea. I started our chat by asking Rob what first got him interested in paleobiology. Well, I was not one of those who, the first time I saw a T-Rex skeleton, was convinced at the age of four that's what I wanted to be. I was a fairly late bloomer. And actually, my original interests were more philosophical and sort of um, political, to be honest. And it was really one particular book, and in fact, one particular chapter, the last chapter in E.O. Wilson's Sociobiology, that really pissed me off. (laughs) Because it ascribes all sorts of biological significance to human gender roles and potentially uh, racial attributes, which which bothered me as a tree-hugging liberal back when I was uh, late teens, early 20s. And I just sort of started descending the scale in the Ture in terms of the evolutionary history of humans and stopped, almost. I still continue to descend, I guess, now and then into non-mammals, but pretty much uh, the basal radiations of placental mammals is what I studied today. Okay, and, and for those of us who aren't familiar, what are placental mammals? So everyone listening is a placental mammal. Sheep are placental mammals, goats, whales, sloths, elephants. basically refers to the last common ancestor... Uh, and all of that individuals, all that animal's descendants, of all the animals alive today that have a very long intrauterine gestation. Now, I've heard that your paleobiology work has taken you on a bit of a trip around the world, from my homeland, Canada, to Kenya, Spain, Mongolia, I think even Madagascar. Um, But what inspired you to sit in a chair long enough to write Evolution and Belief? And what do you think you're hoping to accomplish through this book? Well, so the bulk of, of Evolution and Belief is basically making the case in what I hope is an accessible way that the mechanism first articulated by Charles Darwin 150 years ago is accurate. The the reason we have biodiversity today, the reason why animals and plants and microorganisms are so different, uh, results directly from this mechanism of descent with modification that he articulated. It's not about the origin of life. That's not what he wrote about in his book. so so I, it really is a compelling idea, and I think he's spot on, uh, and I really wanted to make some of the lines of evidence accessible to a, a general public. The belief side of things um, comes into play because it just so happens that the world's most famous atheist is an evolutionary biologist. It didn't have to be that way. Richard Dawkins could have been a chemist or a, an engineer or something, and it just 
sort of worked out, I guess, that he's an evolutionary biologist, and quite a sophisticated one, uh, one whom I respect a great deal. Um, but un- it's led, unfortunately, to the belief, to the perception, I should say, that atheism and evolutionary biology, Charles Darwin in particular, are somehow synonymous, and I strongly object to that view. Now, some people, as you mentioned, <laughs> Richard Dawkins, um, mm. believe that atheism is the inevitable conclusion of evolutionary theory, and you make the exact opposite claim in your book. Mm. So why do you think religious truth and scientific truth are not necessarily in conflict? Well, so a couple of things to say, um, going in reverse chronological order. What a lot of people call religious truth and scientific truth are actually in conflict sometimes. And it's a very nuanced issue, and this conversation is a long one, as you're nodding your head vigorously, and we agree on that. The The other point to, to say, I think, to be fair, is I, I suppose if, if if Professor Dawkins were here right now, he might take issue with the characterization that he says that you know evolutionary biology leads inevitably to atheism. I, I quote in my book a couple of places where he says pretty much that, but if you give him time and some opportunity to elaborate, and I, I would recommend to your listeners a very um, interesting conversation between him and Rowan Williams, not the most recent debate here in Cambridge, but about a year ago, I think the two of them had a conversation in Oxford, and they clearly like each other, and they're intelligent people, and you know, you wouldn't really get that impression from Richard Dawkins based on that conversation. So I did want to be careful to not to perpetuate the idea that Dawkins himself is somehow synonymous with with atheism. He's a somewhat more nuanced individual. Um, but it is true that I, I make the claim and try to back it up in my book that the mechanism that Charles Darwin articulated is not at all, you know, a, a, an apology for atheism. It's it's far from it. I mean, uh, Dar- Darwin himself was actually quite careful to make the case that his ideas was not the substance or not um, sort of intellectual justification to to endorse atheism. You give some very specific explanations for why you think religion and science are not necessarily in conflict. Uh, one of them is distinguishing between cause and agency. Mm. Sure. Yeah, this is a this is something that um, has existed for centuries in a lot of philosophical and theological literature. And basically the idea is that you can understand a given phenomenon based on the agent behind it. So in the book, I use the example of the steam engine, and Thomas Savory is an English country gentleman who, you know, invented some aspects of the steam engine a couple hundred years ago. You could also understand the mechanism by which it works, namely water boiled to a gas, which in turn powers the rotation of a turbine. And you don't have to know anything about Thomas Avery to understand the effect of gas on a turbine, and and the contrary is also true, right? And so this is something that has cropped up many, many times in, in my book and, and other people's uh, books um, that religion is essentially about an agent. Religion is, at least in the classical Judeo-Christian tradition, is about an agent behind the natural laws as we observe them. And the scientific exploration of those natural laws can proceed whatever you think about the existence or lack thereof of that agent. Distinguishing between science asking the question of how diversification or convergent evolution correct. happen versus religion asking by whom. That's essentially correct, yes. And you also distinguish between methodological naturalism and mm-hmm. philosophical naturalism in your book. What do you mean by that? So methodological naturalism is basically a commitment to the the idea that there are um, processes underway that human beings can understand. 
in terms of some phenomenon. And so by, in the case of biology, the phenomenon would be biodiversity. Why are things so diverse today? And so to claim that there's some sort of supernatural force is a violation of methodological naturalism. Philosophical naturalism is a worldview that uh, is a metaphysical worldview that says phenomena for which we don't have immediate empirical data, um, a creator behind the laws of the universe, for example, uh, we don't really have an empirical basis to negate that. We don't have empirical data to support that claim, but we, we can't negate it either. So philosophical naturalism makes that metaphysical step, saying that, well, because this phenomenon for which data is not perceptible, um, or because there is a phenomenon for which data is not perceptible, that phenomenon does not exist. Now, there's a lot of good reasons why you might want to to endorse the worldview of philosophical naturalism. Um, Just to stop the paranormal activity movies, for one. <laughs> yes. Well, whether it has an effect on that I, is debatable. But if it did, yeah, absolutely, for sure. But you could also, you know, you could also wage a very effective battle against superstition using the uh, orientation, using the philosophy of, of uh, metaphysical, um, I beg your pardon, uh, methodological naturalism. There are too many M words here. That, um, so, yeah, the, they're very, they're different attitudes. So just to sum up, uh, someone who's a, a theistic evolutionist like I am, who I have a religious commitment for other reasons that are largely personal, um, and I don't view that as caustic or negative or bad somehow to my ability to investigate natural phenomena. So I am methodological naturalism. To invoke some kind of supernatural agent to explain a natural phenomenon is, in my view, unproductive. It's not. It's fundamentally beyond science, right? And to some extent, that's a practical decision. Whereas if I were a philosophical naturalist, I would say, you know, there's the, the empirical data for anything that a, a human mind can conceive. For example, a, an author of the universe and the laws by which that universe functions a claim like that needs empirical data. And I find that to be really more than the human mind can legitimately assert, right? So, so the philosophical naturalist is someone who, by, by, the, by definition, is not religious, right? So I'm a religious paleontologist. I endorse the view of, of um, methodological naturalism. And while you're confessing, as the book title says, do you mm. mind my asking, how do you identify yourself, your religion? Are you Catholic or Protestant, or how do you sure. identify? Well, so my, my dad's Jewish. My mom's Presbyterian. I grew up in a Presbyterian church in the western part of New York State. Um, and I, I'm a Christian. I currently attend services at Anglican Evensong, more often during term. Um, so, yes, I identify with the Christian tradition. For the Huffington Post, you've blogged about the merits of an accommodationist approach, which mm. sounds like a green light to teach religious doctrine in science class. And to me, teaching religion in science class makes about as much sense as teaching science during a church sermon. Um, so I, I don't think that's what you're actually saying. So where do you stand on science curriculum? Yes, well, I am not advocating, nor have I ever advocated, the introduction of some sort of, um, you know, what most people hear of religion, especially a phrase like religious doctrine, you know, that that is a truly awful. I just happened to see Persepolis last night. This is about. I don't know if you've seen that. This film about the uh, 1979 Iranian Revolution. You know, and that you see these images of of these um, you know quasi-fascist theocrats and introducing something like that into science education. It's clearly anathema, and I do not support that in my book. And I will not. Obviously, uh, that I'm trying to distance myself as much as possible from such an awful possibility. On the other hand. 
if you have in the context of science class a child who asks a question about, well, you know, maybe they confuse agency and cause. Maybe if, if a science teacher says, well, you know, really we have this mechanism of descent with modification, and a child may feel, well, but my parents told me that God did it. Isn't this a problem? This is not a hard, this is not really a, a fatal issue. This is not something that you should be afraid of to discuss in a given science class. And if, you know, if a science teacher is philosophically inclined, depending on how much time they have left in the class, there's all sorts of other things that they got to worry about before this is necessarily a huge priority. But would it really be such a bad thing for that philosophically inclined science teacher to say, well, you know, there are lines of uh, religious doctrine that absolutely conflict with what we know about how the world works. It was not created in six periods of 24 hours. It's not 6,000 years old. Virgins do not give birth, you know, at least if they do, then they have to be genetically identical to the mother. So, you know, any kind of virgin birth would inevitably entail, in the case of a mammal, an XX offspring, right? So female. Anyways, would it be such a bad thing for that philosophically inclined teacher to articulate this issue between agency and cause, which is a pretty straightforward philosophical issue to mention. It's not going to, you know, most fervent participants in either side of this debate won't be terribly convinced. But that is some raw material with which a conversation can be started. Um, and again, you know, I think ultimately it boils down to the discretion of a, of a science teacher, the extent to which they want to engage some of these more philosophical issues. And I, I wouldn't criminally penalize a science teacher for doing so. I wouldn't incorporate it into, you know, hardcore mainstream A-level curricula. Um, so I, I hope that answers your, your question. Very interesting, and a good question about whether to include religious explanations of the natural world in school science education. It's a real hot-button issue. But what do you think about it, Chris? Well, I'm a fan of Rob's idea for teachers to have the freedom, preparation, and confidence to help students distinguish between scientific and religious explanations. And it's about doing this in a helpful and respectful way. After all, Roger, dialogue really is the mother of all progress, isn't it? Indeed it is. Though I expect it might be difficult for teachers to control the influence of their own personal beliefs on the way they approach the subject. But what about the idea that science and religion can't explain the same things. That's a good point, and I asked Rob about that. I think to help draw a cleaner line between science and religion for the sake of organizing educational curricula, it's often pointed out that science is the exploration and explanation of the natural world, while religious explanations deal with the supernatural. Let's have a listen to Rob's reply. Yeah, indeed, and I guess um, I think I'm a bit hesitant to sort of uh, make it a purely definitional distinction between science and religion, and religion has nothing to say about the natural world, and science has nothing to say about religion, because there is clearly overlap. Um, I guess the scientists uh, are legitimate to take issue with a religious claim when they hear one that implicates something about reproduction, or the age of the earth, or, you know, Resurrection, for that matter. I mean, there there's a long list of things that human societies, in the course of eking out their metaphysical understanding of where, who we are and where we come from, there's a long list of things that are clearly wrong. The Earth does not sit on a stack of turtles, for example. On the other hand, you know, every generation, you and I, your audience who are listening right now, every generation has to rediscover certain aspects of our own existence and our connection to the natural world. And that's not a bad thing. 
and religion is a way in which me you know speaking for myself that's something that has been of great help to me to understand my place in the universe and you know it's great to figure out mechanisms and how questions it's also great to struggle with these why questions and every generation is going to do that whatever you know people like me write down in books you know i mean the hope that we have is that we make this articulation we articulate these points in a way that uh, that helps people come to grips with these issues rather than than hurts them and i think one of the other points that's that's relevant here is this you know what is it that's going to maximize science literacy sensu lato you know what is it that i can do as a paleontologist that that you can do as as someone interested in in science communication that's going to make it accessible for people to look at the data behind descent with modification is biodiversity really the way it is in large part due to this idea first articulated uh, to great acclaim by by Charles Darwin, one of the ways that you don't do that, in my humble opinion, is to somehow link that kind of science, which was never intended to have anything to do with religion. Um, One way you don't do that is to link it with a worldview that our brothers and sisters out there find offensive. And this is a really tough issue because there are... You know, if there is a religion out there that clings to the idea that the Earth is six thousand years old, there's not really a lot you can do with that. You know, I mean, I, I can phrase it in a polite way. My my esteemed colleague, please consider the evidence that the Earth is not six thousand years old. You know, and if they don't listen, there's not much you can do about that. But what is not uh, productive, in my view, is to take something like evolutionary biology and and imply or say, as some of my, I mean, we've we were picking on Richard Dawkins a moment ago, and we may as well do it again. No, he has said that in, in a, an interview on a program called Point of Inquiry, and in, I think it was the summer of 2010. DJ Grothy, I believe, was the interviewer. Uh, excellent program. But, you know, Dawkins said in that program, basically, I am an evolutionary biologist because, or I'm sorry, let me rephrase it, I am an atheist because of how I understand this mechanism of modification. And to me, that's a complete non sequitur. That does not follow. You know, I may as well say that, getting back to our steam engine example, that Thomas Savory is a myth because I know it's water heating to a, a gas turning a turbine that did it. That's a non sequitur. The one does not follow from the other. A very good point. So what do you think are some interesting examples of evolution from a paleobiology perspective? Well, one that I find particularly compelling has to do with the way in which humans, as good the good mammals that they are, perceive sound. It's called the impedance matching ear, and mammals have a particular system by which you have a tympanic membrane followed by three small ear ossicles that conveys airborne sound into a fluid-filled inner ear cavity. And there's a great line of evidence driving from comparative embryology that documents how this evolved, and that line of evidence from embryology is reflected in great detail in the fossil record. Do you have another example? There are many. I guess the the correspondence of trees of life built by genetic evidence and uh, comparative anatomy, anatomical evidence is another excellent example. You know, the other examples I discuss in my book include the evolution of trichromatic vision. How is it that most primates, some primates, well, old world primates to be specific, can perceive red, greens, and blues, whereas, say, something like a lemur or a galago uh, have... Uh, color spectrum that's a bit more restricted. I would like 
to be a bird. They can see ultraviolet. It's true, yes. Well, th- there's a number of things that are different about eyes and birds that enable them to do that. So one thing is that they don't have a, an, a lens inside of every eyeball of all of your listeners is a is a hard device, a hard device, well, a hard object, a rock, basically, that consists of an accumulation of crystals that focuses light on the retina. Birds use oil droplets to, to facilitate that, not a hard crystalline lens. And one of the things that a lens does is filter out certain parts of the spectrum. So it's, it's not unheard of, but it's much more rare for mammals to exhibit UV sensitivity. The evolution of the complex eye is actually one example that mm. intelligent design proponents or proponents of creationism often point to to suggest that evolution can't be because something is complicated yeah. with as many moving parts as an eye. Mm. There's no way that could just randomly evolve. Well, neither I nor any other evolutionary biologist has, has ever said that that is randomly evolved, randomly meaning a million slot machines all turning up lemon at the same time. That's not at all the process that Darwin articulated. I didn't actually write about the evolution of the eye at all in my book behind uh, beyond a mention or two, simply because easily accessible explanations of precisely that complex have been available in mainstream literature for decades. Um, and, it, you know, the, looking at the diversity of living animals alone makes it clear that there are many, many different ways to perceive light, to transmit that kind of light to a part of your brain that can make sense of it. There's a great deal of variation as to the acuity and depth and perspectives that other animal forms have to perceive light that is very consistent with this notion that a piecemeal kind of evolution from more simple to more complex has happened uh, over and over again in the course of vertebrate evolution. So speaking as a paleobiologist, the absence of intermediate fossils is often pointed to as another reason to doubt the mechanism of evolution Mm. by natural selection. How would you explain that? Well, the um, there are intermediate fossils, lots of them. Uh, the examples that I discuss at some length in my book include not only the evolution of um, terrestrial whales to fully aquatic whales, which is something that your audience has heard many times, and you don't need my book to read about that, but something that doesn't get as much attention is the divergence between baleen whales, that is to say whales that filter feed through big bands of keratin that hang from the roof of their mouth, their evolution from a common ancestor they share with toothed whales, things like dolphins and orcas and sperm whales, is very well documented by the fossil record. There are fossil whales that exhibit in a mosaic fashion precisely as you would expect if the Darwinian mechanism actually happened. Uh, There's a great number of uh, whale fossils of early mysticetes, including whales that uh, probably had simultaneous presence of baleen and teeth, which is something that no modern whale exhibits, but of course we, we have evidence for that in the fossil record. So where do you think that misconception comes from, that evolution is a random process? Well, there's a cottage industry derived from various opponents of Darwin that has been going on throughout the world, not just in the United States, for decades now. And ultimately I think it boils down to a, a sense of metaphysical threat that people of a certain philosophical persuasion perceive when mainstream science says that we share common ancestry with a chimpanzee or indeed with other forms of life, which is a shame. And given that regrettable situation uh, where dissent with modification, Darwin is perceived as threatening, this results in people simply not doing their homework, people simply not reading the easily accessible literature out there that documents evolution of any number of fairly complicated organs from any perspective. Um, 
so yeah, no, I, and this of course extends also to the alleged lack of transitional fossils because of course that's exactly what we have over and over again in many different places in, in the fossil record. Wrapping up, do you have any tips for aspiring young scientists? Read. <laughs> Your book. <laughs> well, I think on to be to be fair, yes, absolutely. Of course, they should read my book. There's a long list um, of fantastic books out there that I would highly, highly recommend. Uh, Wallace Arthur is a, a very good writer who uh, has a number of titles. Steve Jones from UCL, um, Francis Collins, current director of the National Institute of Health, you know, the, Neil Shubin, University of Chicago. There's, there's a long list of authors out there who have laid out the evidence for the Darwinian view of evolution of biodiversity, and it's really not tough at all to, to find these things. Fair-minded listeners out there will do themselves a huge favor by seriously considering this literature by mainstream biologists, some of whom are very, very good writers, and my book is pretty far down that list, but, you know, it's part of it. Well, maybe we can get you to send us a bit of a reading recommendations list, and we'll put that up on our podcast page. That would be my pleasure. Okay, so read and get involved, engage, and do it politely. Thank you very much, here, here. Rob. Thank you for being with us here today. My pleasure. Thank you. Many, many thanks to Dr. Rob Asher. You can check out our podcast page for more information on Rob's book, Evolution and Belief, and to see his list of recommended readings. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio, Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website, www.cambridge105.fm. You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Chris Crease. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. <laughs>